0: Well, we continue on in our sermon series called Jesus Is, and we are smack dab in the middle of the book of Hebrews, and tonight we're going to be tackling a difficult-to-understand passage. We're not going to, um, well, I say we're not going to. We're going to walk through details more so than you might hear uh, typically on a Sunday morning, but we aren't going to get bogged down by the details. And so the topic tonight, the theme is that Jesus is better than Melchizedek. How many of you have read in Hebrews 7? This guy, this Melchizedek guy, uh, and you just thought, boy, that's complicated and pretty weird. That'd be a lot of us, all of us. Well, you'd be right. Um, It is kind of weird and it is kind of complicated, but it plays an important role in our understanding of how great Jesus is. And so the author spends an entire chapter talking about this Melchizedek guy. Now, out of all... um, of the folks that Jesus is compared to, uh, he is probably the one that we know the least about. And so be prepared uh, for the lack of information that's going to come in his background. But we're going to do our best to tackle it. Now, here's the big picture. Just so you know, this whole Melchizedek guy, he is um, not only a high priest, but he's a king. And in the Old Testament, you don't mix the two you're either a priest or you're a king, and they're completely separate, and they have separate functions and separate meanings, and the only one who comes close to mixing the two is King David. He does some things as a king that uh, only priests should do, and then we see, of course, Jesus, through his lineage, is a priest and king forever, and so the big picture from Melchizedek is that this guy who has this priesthood that goes on forever, the big picture is that he is both king and priest. Now, tonight we're going to talk a lot, because the author does, about the priesthood side of things, but it's important to know that's big picture. We have a, a priest and a king that lives forever in Jesus. Okay, so that's big picture. Now, we're going to, again, we're going to jump into to some of the details, um, but I, I want to throw this out, because I haven't passed, and I'm going to do it again tonight. I think we're all looking for a priest, I think we're all looking for a priest on earth. We wouldn't say that. But we put our hope, our trust in people to give us what only God can give us, to be our go between, between where we are now and and a better life or all that God has to offer. Um, We search out tangible things. For a lot of people, that's what a priest represents, would be uh, someone tangible to be able to comfort them, to be able to atone for their sins to give them peace of mind in the spiritual realm, and I think we're seeking that out in a lot of different places, and knowing that everything you pour your time and energy into, and this is going to be a weird way to look at it, but knowing what we know about sin, righteousness, and judgment, that we'll be Will be On the day uh, of judgment, we'll be held accountable for everything that we're doing on this earth, what we're seeking after, who we're pouring into, who we're trusting in, uh, what we're doing with this life. Knowing that, we also need to know that the things we pour into and try to get what only God can give, the things we try to do that with here on earth, those things will have to stand with us on judgment day as what we have put our trust in. We don't usually look at it that way. But before we stand in front of God, we're going to have to say, man, is what I'm really pouring my trust into, like my faith here on earth, is it in the right things? Because I'm going to have to take all of that to judgment day and say, here, this is what I thought was worthwhile on earth. This is who I thought I should trust. So tonight as we walk through this, I want you to ask yourself, am I trusting Jesus to not only be my high priest in in most of life, but in everything? Because people are great. Things can be used for decent, noble causes, meaning material things. But only Jesus can do the things that we really need. We had a gal that we were in ministry with who was saved and caught on fire. And man, she had God stories over and over and over. And we were so excited. We we're just like, man. God's doing something, and she's like, wow, you know, this week I was ministering to this person, and and God showed up and did this, and it was awesome, and it's just day after day she had God stories, and and you could tell she was just illuminated, her mind was illuminated, and she was experiencing God in new ways, you could see she was trusting, she was growing, she was a work in progress like all of us, but it looked like, for the most part, that she had really given her life, all of it, to Christ, and she wanted to do missions, and she wanted to go places And served Jesus all over, all over the world. We had an opportunity to go plant a church, so she went with us. And we knew going into it that even though she was on fire and she was growing, we knew that deep down there was like one little struggle, whether it be societal pressures, family pressures, like she wanted to be married. A noble thing, good thing. But man, she struggled giving that trust to God for marriage not knowing would she get married, whatever the, I mean, she she just struggled trusting, but it was something we were working through. But that one little thing, I would ask her, I'd ask her over and over, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? And I had no idea that it would blow up the way it did But by the time we got to the next church plant, man, the first couple months, things were good. And then it started going downhill. She started to separate herself from us, from the church, from God. And we could just tell something isn't quite right. And and we were just trying to get to the bottom of it. And we found out um, before too long that she was dating this guy. And this guy that she was dating was, to make a long story short, someone she should not have been dating. And she knew she wasn't supposed to be dating him. But she wanted somebody in her life so bad. So bad that she was willing to get even the wrong guy. I wish I could tell you that story turns out great, and the story's not over. But within six months, she was out of that church plant, not going to any church, separated herself from her Christian friends, moved in with the guy, and has distanced herself as much as she can, if it were possible, from God, one little seed of saying, I'm going I'm to go to Jesus for 99% of what I think I need on earth, but I'm going to withhold just a little bit, it will blossom into a discontentment that will shatter you at some point. Are you taking everything to Jesus? Well, let's jump in. This will be fun. Now, we're just going gonna to cover the whole chapter, all 28 verses, if we can. And so I'm just going to walk through verse by verse, and we'll stop every 10 verses or so and really settle in. Okay, Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1. So it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem. That is King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, a priest forever. All right, so let's talk about this. This is, this is answering the question, who is this Melchizedek? So in the Bible, outside of Hebrews here, we have two passages that mention this guy in the Old Testament. Number one is Genesis chapter 14. This is when Abram, before he's Abraham, he goes out, fights this righteous, this righteous battle. He, he gets a bunch of plunder from it as they win this mini war. And then he meets this guy, this Melchizedek on the road, and he gives a tenth of everything he has to him. So Genesis chapter 14 we see just a blip of him, but that's what this is referring to. And then we see Psalm 110 verse 4 where God tells through David says, "You will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever." And so it's this declaration that through David's lineage there will be somebody who is a priest In the order of Melchizedek, but David's lineage doesn't have priesthood in it. So, why in the order of Melchizedek? So, it's kind of complicated until the author then talks about it here. So, those two passages, they talk about Melchizedek. So, here's what's going on this Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem actually is Jerusalem before Jerusalem was Jerusalem. So, Salem is Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God. So, right off the bat, king and priest unlike anyone else in the Old Testament, king and priest, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And, and Abraham then gave him a tenth part of everything. So we say, that makes sense because you bring your tithe to priests, you give them a tenth of everything you have. Here's the problem. Moses, the Mosaic law, tithing, all that, that doesn't come into play until like 1500 BC. But this is several hundred years prior to that. So they don't even do the whole tithing thing. Now in Middle Eastern tradition and many of their cultures, giving a tenth of what you had to your king and whatnot, that was common. But Abraham's just like, I, I, I just see you as something really special, king and priest, and I'm, I just feel compelled to do it. Now in the Genesis story, Melchizedek wasn't by himself. He was with another king, a king of Sodom. And they went out and met Abraham on the road. And it says that he gave, all, he gave a tenth of his stuff to Melchizedek. Why didn't he do it to, to, to Sodom? That king, right? Like he obviously recognized that this Melchizedek was something special. And then it goes on to say that he is a king by his name. It means righteousness. It means peace. And then it gets kind of complicated here. So this is the big, who is this guy? It says he doesn't have father or mother or genealogy. He doesn't have beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the son of God, a priest forever. So Four primary views as to who this guy is in general. The first one, if you're just at home reading this, uh, regardless of your translation, the first one you're going to think is, maybe he's just God. Like, who, who it sounds kind of eternal. No beginning of days, end of life. Like, well, he's not God. The rest of the Bible would have mentioned, probably, if it was Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and old Kizzy over here, like number four. Like, he, he, he would have probably got thrown in there. So it's not God biblical context will tell us that. Number two, is this the pre-incarnate Christ? So is this Jesus in the Old Testament? Did he show up and people were like, oh, we notice you are Lord, like we recognize you as Lord. Um, It doesn't say Jesus in the Old Testament, but we can tell like that was Jesus. Well, we get in trouble here. Regardless of your translation, you see this word resembling the Son of God. So it's saying Jesus is better than this guy. This isn't Jesus in the Old Testament. The whole point of this passage is that Jesus is better than this guy. So this guy is not Jesus. Jesus can't be better than Jesus. And the third one is that he was an angel. Now this could be true. In the 1940s, we found a bunch of scrolls in the Middle East in a cave, uh, several caves in what we call Qumran. And cave number 11 had uh, some fragments that the early church had written that they thought he was some kind of angel that went and reigned, and he was a king and he was a priest, and he stayed on earth for a while. We generally don't see angels hanging out for like a long, long, long time, settling in, becoming king and priest of some place. Guess it could be. I don't know. And then the fourth one is that he was just a king and a priest, a historical figure. And that when we see without mother or father or genealogy, it's a reference to the fact that he didn't have the Levitical genealogy, the priesthood that, the, that Levi and then, of course, Aaron had, who they could be priests. But he, uh, we don't recognize. Scholars would say, well, for this view, we don't, belie- we don't know, we don't have um, any understanding of where he came from or what happened to him afterwards, but he existed. And so it's just a reference to, like, we don't have the data of his genealogy. It's not recorded anywhere. Regardless of what it might be, we know he's a priest and a king, and Abraham thinks he's the bomb. So Hebrews chapter 7, then verses 4 through 7, it says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So right there, it's just saying, this guy is awesome. See how great he is? So now we're building him up, we're building him up. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, so remember this is hundreds of years later. Levi, And then through him, the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though there are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So what that's basically saying is it's beyond dispute that Melchizedek is better than Abraham. And through Abraham, eventually the father of the Israelite nations, you, you've got then um, Levi and Aaron and those who are normal priests. I wish I could say there's a lot more there, but that's kind of it. And then verses 8 to 10. It says, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, remember who didn't come for hundreds of years later after this encounter with Abraham, who receives tithes. Paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So this author saying, you want to know what Melchizedek's so awesome that it could be said that Levi, who he's used to getting tithes from people because he's the priest and all his lineage are priests, you know what? It could be said that he, through Abraham, was paying ten percent all he has to this Melchizedek guy. That's how awesome Melchizedek is. Levi wouldn't even thought of yet. Okay. So the, let's, let's park then for a second. We kind of already answered this as much as we can tonight. Who is Melchizedek? So we walked through it, but here's the big idea. The purpose of this passage, the author is saying, this dude is awesome. He's really awesome. He's a king and a priest, and he's really awesome. Awesome. So he's just, he's bragging him up. He's building him up. And so you say then, well, why would God show us this Melchizedek? Well, we're going to see not only from this, but the next verses, we're going to see a few things. Number one, it's saying that there needs to be a better priest than the ones who came through the line of, of Aaron and Levi. And with that, there needs to be a better covenant that needs to come. And Melchizedek is the better priest because he's eternal in some sense. And not only that, but Jesus, because he is in the order of Melchizedek, is not just a priest like Aaron and Levi in their lineage, but he's also a king, and it's unique. So, let me, let me draw this back to us a little bit. I know this is really riveting stuff. What do we do with this part? Okay, sounds like a great guy. I said earlier that we're all we're all searching for a priest. We're putting our hope in people. Unfortunately, I wish we didn't, but we do. To give only the things that God can give. And so right now I want you to build those people up in your mind. You got mamas, you got papas, you got you got your kiddos, you got your friends, you got family, you got careers, you got jobs, you got houses, you got all that stuff. Like build it up as much as you possibly can. Build it up. Do what the author's doing say you know what it's awesome these things you have these people you have they're awesome they're great i remember when tara and i got together and we got engaged and we were preparing to get married and we had to make decisions like well uh, are we going to use some of your furniture, or my furniture, or a combination of both, and and she just had bought a bunch of new furniture, and she looked at my furniture, and I had a house, and I thought it was nice, furniture, like it didn't have big holes in or anything. I thought it was nice, and she said, we're not going to use your furniture at all, in any capacity, <laughs> and zero, z- like zero percent chance, and I was kind of like torn up, because Number one, that said my discernment was horrible. Like, I thought it was decent furniture. And so, like, I had to go through this mourning process of my life just being cast aside. But at least I can get some money from it, right? So we have a garage sale. I'm thinking this is going to get snatched up quick. (laughs) We didn't sell any of it. So then we put a free sign. Nobody will take my junkie furniture. This is my top of the line, bought a house, remodeled the house, and this is what I chose to put in it, that good of stuff. Nobody will take it for free in the poor part of town. I'm angry. So we load it up in my truck, and I take it to the Salvation Army and they meet me in the back <laughs> and they say there is no way we're going to take your stuff you're going to have to find another dumpster <laughs> it's just as heartbreaking now i'm crying inside <laughs> i'm crying inside. they they were so adamant like he was angry and mean to me that i would even try to give him the stuff for free <laughs> i was heartbroken And so we trashed it. We trashed it. You see, in my mind, what I thought was really great really was not that great at all. And so do what the author's doing. Build up those who you are going to, who you are are trusting for things that you shouldn't be trusting, and build them up because we're going to smack them down in a second when you see them in comparison to Jesus. I needed a good laugh. Verses 11 through 14, it says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Okay, so basically here's what he's saying. He's saying if perfection could have come from the law, nothing would need to change. But the law of the Old Testament can't save you unless you're perfect. How many of you are perfect? Doesn't do much for us, does it? So if, if the law then is not that great, like if, it, if it's going to pass away, if we need something else, we're also going to have another order of priesthood. And, and by nature, if you change the lineage, the genealogy of the priest, if you say we're going to get priests from outside of Levi and Aaron's line, you got to change the law because they were connected together. We got one law and we got one group of people who are going to be the priests for it. If you change the priest's, and it's saying, we need someone after the order of Melchizedek. He's a, he's a bomb dude. Like, he's good. He's a great dude. But we need someone better than even him. Then you've got to change the whole law. It's got to be a whole different covenant. It's got to be something better. And he's saying, we know that our Lord descended from Judah. And Moses didn't say anything about Judah's tribe being priests. And so verses 15 through 19. So this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek." So it becomes even more evident. You see your old junky couch next to a nice new couch, and it becomes evident you needed a new couch. Who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is Psalm 110, verse 4 here. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Okay, so it's saying that this indestructible life is much better evidence that there's a better covenant, a better priest coming than simply... Having your name, the next one on the line from a genealogy list, and so it's going to talk about this oath here in a second. And it was not without an oath. Boy, that was a great transition. <laughs> For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. So you were in the line of Aaron. Guess what? It's your turn. You're up. You're next. Like it's not like, boy, let's have a big powwow to figure out who gets to go next. No, you're in the family. Guess what? You're a priest. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarant I don't even know how to say that. The guarantor. Is that how you say it? The guarantor of a better covenant. So Jesus... Is coming to guarantee a better covenant. So here's what it's saying. Listen, in in the Old Testament, it's great that all these people came from the line of Levi and and they became then priests. But here's the deal this new one, this one who comes in a different order, uh, uh, who who has this eternal background, this Jesus who's coming in the order of Melchizedek, a whole different kind of priesthood. And this priesthood is, is witnessed by an indestructible life. It's not going away, it's eternal, it's not changing, but it was. Brought in by God himself, the Father, saying, you will be a priest forever. Like, there's authority in that. So there's an oath that changes things. So what we see in these last 11 or 12 verses is that Jesus, he's the better priest, but he also has a better covenant. He also has a better covenant. You change priests, you got to change the law. And so we have a whole nother covenant. Here, what does this mean for us? It means that when you get tangled up with somebody, to some degree, you got to play by their rules. It's just natural. If your priest is Old Testament priest and they follow the law, like, you're going to have to follow their rules. You can't be like, hey, I want to get a priest from the Levitical uh, genealogy, and then I'm going to have him come do my thing. No, it don't work that way. You make friends with someone who loves to slander on Facebook, like, that's just how they handle things. You're thinking, well, maybe they'll change. Guess what? You tick them off, guess who gets slandered on Facebook next? just happens to some degree you play by the rules of those you get tangled up with. You ever date someone or you got a family member, whatever, um, that you're going through some drama with and you find yourself sick to your stomach because you feel like you're stooping lower than you've ever stooped before? You're like, this isn't me, but I'm doing things in this circumstance that is unlike me because they kind of want to go there. If you're saying, no, I don't know that, you you might be the one that's dragging your friends down. It's common. You play by the rules of those you get tangled up with. I remember when Tara and I went on our honeymoon, and we had uh, uh, five days in Jamaica, and it was awesome. I'm not even going to apologize for it. It was just awesome. I'd never been out of the country before. And we stayed in this Holiday Inn, but it was an all-inclusive resort. We didn't know much. Well, do we do the all-inclusive thing? Do we not? First world problems. And and we did it, and it was awesome. But we would go up on the rooftop, and we would look out of the resort, and we would see nothing but trouble. And so we're on day four out of day five, and we're thinking, we should probably leave the 16th of a mile square (laughs) radius that we've been in and actually see, like, part of this countryside we saw mountains and everything. Like we wanted to get out there a little bit. And so they have these big barricades and like this this fence that uh, there's a dude, the security dude, who's making sure like, are you gonna leave? You got to sign some papers in case you don't ever come back. We're not liable for you getting killed out there. And so you walk out, and we walked out, and this, there's a road there, and it looks like people should be going like 30 miles an hour, but they're going like 65. They're zoom, 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 zoom. And there's a dude across the street, and I can tell just from where we were, I could tell he had bloodshot eyes, and he just did not look healthy. I mean, he was a big old strong dude, um, obviously a native of the land, and. We were just like, oh, gosh, please don't come noi- don't come near us. Please don't come near us. But he saw us, and he was tracking us down. So he's like dodging traffic to come get us. And we're like, oh, my gosh. We we're literally, we just walked outside of the gates. And here we are, and this guy with bloodshot eyes is coming after us. And he comes right up to us, and he's just, he had whatever drugs in his hand, and he just was saying, have it. I couldn't understand what was coming out of his mouth, but he was telling us, buy my drugs, and, and I just took Tara, and we walked away, and we got away, and then we went into some shops that were nearby, and we were kind of asking the people who were working there, like, like, what is going on out here? How could that even be legal? Like, are there not cops around here? And we went from place to place, and people just looked at us like we were stupid, and Tara and I finally looked at each other. After seeing this guy doing what he's doing in broad daylight, everyone can see him. He's doing it on the road, pretty much, and we thought to ourselves, we're not in Kansas anymore. And that's a scary feeling because you think there's a reason they had you sign a paper when you wanted to go outside of this resort because nobody cares about the way that you have used to doing things. They do things different in a different world. And so it's not just that we get Jesus and his awesomeness, it's not just that he's a better priest than this Melchizedek guy, it's that we get a better covenant, that it's completely different than the way that we have lived. It's different than your sin nature expects life to be, it's different than the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it's different than everything we've known, and it goes in stark contrast to everything we understand. The gospel blows me away not only because it's just awesome, but it blows me away because my body wants to like, my mind wants to reject it. My mind, because I I can't process it. Like it's just better. It's almost too good to be true. I mean, you got to understand the context of these Jewish people, these Hebrews who are getting this and they're used to day after day do better, try harder, works, oh, I failed, sacrifice, oh, I failed, sacrifice, oh, I failed, sacrifice, good works, yes, it's about faith, but good works, oh, it should be about faith, but good works, like, you're just in that over and over and over and over and over, and so you hear that Jesus is a better priest than your Old Testament stuff, and they're like, that's kind of hard to believe, and then they hear about this Melchizedek guy, and the author of Hebrews is saying, no, Jesus is even better than him, and it's like, well, that's really awesome, and then it's like, no, Jesus isn't just awesome, Jesus now also brings in a whole new covenant, you change priests, you got to change covenants. And it's, it's like, wow, this is going to be interesting to get used to. But it's a whole different ballgame. Let me ask you this. On a daily basis, this new covenant, this better covenant that we have, of grace and mercy and forgiveness, and Jesus dying for us, and the resurrection, and reconciling us to God, and we have access to God through Him, and we're redeemed, and all the blessings. Like, what do you struggle with the most? You might understand it, but what do you struggle with the most? Is it God's love? When you think about Jesus dying for your sins, and you feel unworthy, like, is it that you just have a hard time accepting that he says you are this lovable that he's going to die for you when sometimes you feel so unlovable? Is it that he says you are worth this much when you feel so unworthy? What do you struggle with to receive the most in this new covenant? Like deep down, do you really receive the fact that you can, you can understand it, but do you really receive the fact that grace and mercy never run dry? Do you receive the fact that God's not sitting up in heaven keeping a list of wrongs and rights, but when he says that as far as the east is from the west, your transgressions are from you, that I will no longer hold them against you? Like, do you really believe When up until you accept Jesus, your reality is that you will be held accountable for everything. And it's true we're going to be held accountable for everything now, but it's under Jesus' perfect blood that we're viewed in the eyes of the Father. Like, do you have a hard time really believing that God views you like he views his son, Jesus? Like, what do you really struggle with? This is why theology changes the way we live. Because these are basics that we hear every single week. And yet it's the in and outs of our prayer life. It's the in and outs of our, our just daily existence that if like we, we can understand them, but if we don't really receive these things, it's going to change the way we view everything. It's going to change whether we come to Jesus for everything or not. What part of the new covenant do you struggle with the most? Verses 23 through 25, the author says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save. Oh, verse 25 is huge. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Uttermost means everything and everywhere. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, next thing we see is that Jesus is the high priest forever. Man, don't people let you down? Don't people let you down all the time? Because everything that we talked about earlier, that that you got on a pedestal, that you're really pouring your trust into, those things are all fleeting. They're fleeting. I talked to a young man the other day. And he's just starting to learn about the faith. But he said, I, w- I want to follow Jesus. I, I, I believe in this stuff. And, but then he was struggling because he had a friend that just got killed. And he was sharing his hope with me. And he said, pray for my friend. Pray that his good deeds on earth were enough. Like, and he's using this, this kind of lingo. He said, pray that it was enough to outweigh the bad stuff. He was a bad dude. His kids his kids didn't like him. But just pray that God would see the good stuff he did. And he went on to describe his hope that as this, as this guy was dead just a matter of days ago, that his hope was that somehow he did enough good stuff in life that God would forgive him for all the bad stuff. And he was just shook up and I remember just feeling sorry for him. And that's the way he viewed all of this, this whole life. That somehow it's just going to shake out at the end and, and maybe uh, God's mercy and grace means that he'll, he'll look at the good stuff and think that's great. Um, and like, what a sad way to view it. On one hand, I was relieved to share the actual gospel with him. On the other hand, I was so saddened knowing the current circumstances of him and his friend in particular. But death does this to people. Death takes all of those things that that we are putting our trust in, all those tangible things, the people that we love the most. And it sounds like such a good idea at the time right? Because you and I, we know this God is invisible, and we know he loves us, and we believe in this stuff, and he's sure, and he's steady, and he's there, but people are in front of us. Things are in front of us. Houses are there, like material things, like it's there. It's tangible, and that brings us this false sense of comfort, and, and it feels great because it's so much more powerful, and we say, man, I hate that I fall into sin and temptation and these other things, but like I can't see God, and I can see these things, and they're what I see right in front of me, and I can touch them, and, and then people die, And we go to funerals and there's this somber feeling because we're blown away at how like they were alive and they were so powerful in my life and like it just seemed right and it seemed wonderful and it was great. And then like all of a sudden, like the power is gone. Like isn't that one of the craziest parts of death? Like you're here and you're breathing and it's so tangible and then it's so opposite. And it's just an earth shaker for us. And the author's saying, Jesus is better because Jesus is forever. You're blown away at everything you're putting your trust in and everyone you're putting your trust in on earth until they die and their power goes away. But let me tell you about my Jesus. Jesus, you know, he coming in the order of Melchizedek because his indestructible life, when he dies, his power doesn't go away. His power multiplies. And it's because of his intercession for us that he's always up there. Like, this is it. What a weird thing to say. That like he saves us to the uttermost. And then he invites us to draw near to him. Are we trusting him for everything as I've challenged you today? And and then he says, since, like what a weird way to say it. What a weird way to, to affirm like our trust. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. We know he said he was going to the right hand of the father that he'll be there. But like that's our hope. Like that is our hope. Why? Because if he's up there making intercession for us right now, it means he lives. It means, it means the resurrection. And so you and I go through seeing everything tangible has power, and then those people die, and all the power goes away. And Jesus, on earth, he talked to hundreds and thousands, and he ministered to them. But in his death, now he intercedes for all of mankind. And on earth, he was here for a while. And in death, his disciples were shaken, thinking, how could this have ended? And yet in his resurrection, we think, man, his power is now more glorious than ever. And it's eternal. Like, what a beautiful thing to know that just the fact that he's interceding for us is proof and affirmation that he is the better priest. Because all throughout history, we have had priests that have done a great job, but they're all dead. And yet, one keeps on going. One keeps on going. And last but not least, verses 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is Jesus. The last thing we see is that Jesus' sacrifice is enough. This is, again, this is one of those things that's easy to understand to some degree, but hard to accept. Verse 27 is the one that gets you. It, I mean, he's saying all together, listen, priests here on earth, like, they got, they're, they're jacked up. And they got to offer sacrifices for themselves, and it goes on over and over and over and over. But the one who offered once and for all now, he continues on forever, not needing to make more sacrifices. Verse 27 is crazy, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You and I, what we want to do so often when we make mistakes, when we sin, our sin nature wants to repay those things in tangible ways. If any of you came from a Catholic background and you've sat and said, ten Hail Marys or confessed your sin to a priest and now you know the truth that Jesus is the high priest and you don't need that priest, yeah, but something in you still says, but didn't it feel good when I did those things? Didn't it feel like I was somehow making up for my mistakes? Because that's what we want. We, we want to be able to say, see, I, I, I made up for what I messed up. So now I really know I'm good. And what happens so often is that the enemy tricks those of us who live under this, no, this new covenant of grace, this better covenant that Jesus ushers in. Of forgiveness and grace and mercy by his death and resurrection and that alone and nothing else. He tricks us, the enemy tricks us into thinking that what we really need to do is live under the Old Testament law instead of enjoying the new covenant. Now we come to church and we say all the time, of course I believe the new covenant. I believe I'm saved. But, But deep down, internally, we're living completely different. And we think to ourselves, you know what? Well, I had I had sexual immorality before we got married and, and so my the sexual relationship with my spouse and marriage it, it's kind of struggled like way more than I ever would have expected. But that's really just God kind of punishing me for what I did before. So you sit there thinking this is punishment. Well, I've made Mistakes with drugs and alcohol and different things when I was in high school. So um, I just, I don't have a job. I can't get a job. This is God's punishment. Now we've talked in the past. A good father disciplines. But punishment has gone on Jesus and Jesus alone for our sins. And so what happens is deep down, and this is why we're not experiencing the power of God the way he wants us to, is because we've taken the gospel and stripped it of its power. And we've said, Jesus died once and for all. Yeah, we get it, but I can't handle that. I want to pay my own sacrifice for my own sins. And and so we start doing little things, thinking somehow I'm gaining God's favor. Somehow if I just, I know I haven't been living right, so if I just go to church for a while, God will be pleased that I'm back on the right track. Well, I'll just get into the Bible a little bit and somehow get brownie points if I open it up and read it. And we start playing that game, and that's dangerous because if you don't trust the fullness of Jesus' sacrifice once and for all, you're eventually going to trust none of it. And you start having mindsets going on where you think to yourself, okay, I sinned, i got to ask for forgiveness, right? got to ask for forgiveness got to do it. And so you ask for forgiveness and you think, okay, God, I ask for forgiveness. What other sins do I got? Okay, I'll ask for forgiveness. But then you think to yourself things like, but what if I sin and then I die in a car wreck? What's going to happen then? Like, am I forgiven for that last sin if I didn't confess that sin? let me ask you, does Jesus need to die again for that sin? You understand the power of of one sacrifice, put yourself, I mean, just close your eyes, put yourself in the position of these, these Hebrews, these people who see these high priests and, and they, they see them almost in ways mocking them. They're like, man, they're hypocrites. They're here to represent me and we're waiting for this Messiah and, and they're going to represent me, yet they themselves are sinners. And Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice and day in and day out and trying harder and we're going like, to... Picture that over and over and over and hundreds of years pass and this is what generation after generation after generation experiences and they know they need something better. They need a better covenant. This isn't working. I'm tired of trying so hard. Surely God, there has to be a different way and they have their prophets come and say there's a Messiah coming. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming and then he comes and he dies once and for all and the Bible says this is it. Picture the relief and the freedom of that. And yet our hearts so easily dismiss it. Why do we think it's too good to be true? Some of us tonight, as we close this, are punishing ourselves are sacrificing in ways to earn God's favor that mean we're missing the entire blessing of this better covenant some of us tonight are deceived that we can claim the better covenant but live under the the one that's obsolete Let me ask you, how's that working out for you? If Jesus has done everything he needs to do 2,000 years ago, yet you still feel like junk inside, tell me, what's your next hope? What more does God need to do to say you're this loved, that your sin is gone, that you are forgiven once and for all, past, present, future, sin. See, it's not what God needs to do. He's done it. It's what we need to accept. As your mind is illuminated with this gospel, your life will change forever. Having Jesus as a high priest and a king in heaven changes everything. Let's pray.